come now to reading our scripture readings today. Reading firstly from Psalm 73, and you'll see that on page 469 of our church Bibles. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always amassing, always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And then we turn to Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And again, that's on page 955 of our church Bibles. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, 
whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Thank you. Good morning, all. Um, my name's John Thorpe. Uh, it's a privilege uh, to be up here uh, speaking this morning, opening up God's Word together. Uh, today we're beginning a new series called Thinking and Feeling in the Psalms. Uh, and it raises the question, uh, how, how do we view the world and make decisions? So some would say that we are primarily rational beings. Uh, we look at the facts and with, when we see all the facts, we make our decisions. We're, we're kind of like a, a bobblehead doll. So, you know, a little more head, not quite so much heart. Others would say, uh, no, no, we're, we're driven by our passions and our desires. Uh, we're driven by our heart. We're, we're more teddy bear than bobblehead doll. Uh, in reality, uh, it's unhelpful if we separate the two too much because uh, we are one person and God calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And so as we look at this series in the Psalms, uh, we perhaps see uh, God's most vivid example of appealing to both our head and heart. And so as, as we read them, uh, we should be stirred uh, we should respond emotionally. Uh, but they also teach us about God and they teach us about life and who we are and what does it mean to live in this life. Uh, and so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, six psalms. So we'll have three uh, in these holidays and a brief break for winter. Uh, and then in September, we'll look at the next three. Uh, and we'll be looking and starting to look today at this theme of despair, which hopefully isn't quite as overwhelming as it sounds. So let me pray and uh, let's open up Psalm 73. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you that you love us, uh, that you speak to us through your word. Uh, we pray that as I teach uh, that I'll be faithful uh, to what you say in the Psalms, I'll be gracious in the way I say it, uh, that we might know you better and love you more. It'd be great to have... Uh, the Psalms open, uh, if you've got your Bible there, keep it in front of you because we'll keep going back to it all the way through. But to start, I want you to imagine that you are an, an avid bushwalker. Okay, think more intrepid explorer than responsible scout. Okay, and you've decided to set out in the Blue Mountains, you've looked at your map, and uh, you've set out in the Blue Mountains to find what you think will be the perfect escarpment lookout. Okay, big cliff, nice view, that's what you're going for. And you are way off the beaten track. Okay, it's deep, heavy bush. No one is ever going to find you here, but you're out there and you're going to find the perfect place. And then as you're pushing through this undergrowth, your foot just finds midair. And you slip down into what is this naturally formed pit. And you're hurt, but you're not injured. 
And then you, as, you, as you look around in your, in your problem, uh, you start to work out a way out. So there's sort of an, an optimism and a determination that you can solve this problem. You're in it, but you can get out of it. And so you work out your way out and you're trying to climb up and you're doing quite well and then your foot slips and then your hand gives way and you, and you, you plummet back down to the bottom. But that's okay. Never give up, never surrender. You give it another shot. You're climbing up, a little bit better this time, a little bit, you know, you're going to win. And then again, the hand slips back down to the bottom. And that determination and that optimism starts to give way to frustration and fear. And you try again and again, but you're not getting further up, you're just getting more and more tired. And then that fear starts to become panic. And you start yelling out, hoping that perhaps someone will hear you. And the hours pass and no one comes. And slowly and steadily you start to realise that you can't save yourself and no one is coming. And at that point you start to reach despair. That inevitable, hopeless reality that nothing is going to save you. Uh, Most of the time, uh, when we think about this theme of despair, it's driven by our circumstances of life. So chronic uh, physical or emotional or mental illness, uh, failure in our work, uh, difficulties in our family, the loss of someone we love. Uh, And a good example of that is perhaps uh, the book of Ruth, which we've just looked at, where both Naomi and Ruth have lost their husbands. Uh, they are destitute. Uh, and Naomi says, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. But in this psalm, uh, it isn't so much the despair of his circumstances as his perspective on life, his perception of reality. And the, the walls are perhaps less concrete, but no less real and no less oppressive. So the psalm starts with these words as he stands on the brink of a spiritual chasm. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Rationally, the psalmist knows that God is good. But in his heart, he just doesn't feel it. And he struggles between what he knows and what he feels. And as we look at this psalm, uh, I'm going to do it under four headings, which hopefully is helpful. Uh, The allure of wickedness, the arrogance of the wicked, the oppressiveness of doubt, and then finally the clarity of perspective. So have a look with me uh, at verse 2 and on. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imagination has no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. It's such a potent picture of the wicked, isn't it? You know, we are created in the image of God, but that's not enough. 
We want to take the place of the Creator. And it seems to work. These people, uh, you know, they set their desire on something, on anything that they desire, and it works out for them. They're the beautiful people. They don't love God, and they just seem to have success after success. They set their hearts and minds on where they want to go and then justify how they're going to get there. And if someone gets in the way, well, that's just bad luck to them. And they're admired for their ambition and their determination. And no one really cares about their character because it's all about success. In a culture where we're constantly told we need to indulge in every opportunity and where the only real sin is self-restraint, it's easy to compare our lives to, to the lives of the wicked and feel that we're missing out that perhaps they've got it right. There's a Bruce Springsteen song that says, Mama always told me not to look into the eyes of the sun, to which the boy replies, but Mama, that's where the fun is. As Christians, we often protest. You know, we say, we know this is a facade. We know that money doesn't buy happiness and we, what we're seeing is that the photoshopped, you know, Facebook, everything is beautiful version of reality. And even though we, we know that in our mind, we still feel our affections drawn to it. It still looks attractive and we can't help but feel that perhaps we'd be better with it than without it. And so the psalmist is feeling the allure of sin but he's also beaten down by the arrogance of the wicked. Verse 9, Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? The arrogant boldly assert there is no God that we are if the only power in the universe is us and those who have the will to take it. And they say it with confidence and they are articulate and intelligent and we buy into it, we feel it as a society, we listen to these people of influence and we can't help but feel that perhaps they've got it right. And even if there is a God, then he's either distant or he doesn't care. And really, it's a perfect picture of sin, isn't it? Humanity attempting to assert its independence. There is no God. I don't want to know him. I do not need him. And even if there is something out there, it has no right to tell me how to live my life. Uh, last week, if you've been following the news, uh, there was an article uh, about uh, chaplaincy funding uh, and uh, a high court ruling against the federal government uh, supporting uh, chaplaincy. Uh, In reality, it's probably only going to change the way funding occurs. But what was perhaps most interesting and most confronting for us as Christians is when you read the response to it. Uh, So in the Herald, uh, there was one article. uh, There were 500 comments uh, about Christians in schools. Uh, Let me choose three of which you can imagine there are another 497 very similar. Here's one. 
People who claim that, the only, that only public schools should not teach fairy tales have got it wrong. As a child, I was subject to academic terrorism at the hands of the Anglican Church. The rights of my parents, the church and the government to subject me to bullying and brainwashing by the dumbest nutters in the nation was zilch. My right not to be exposed to such a ridiculous institution was 100%. He continues, A teacher today who will not sell out their students by drawing a wage at the hands of such a moronic institution has 25% less job opportunities than an insane teacher who believes a virgin was impregnated by the Holy Spirit because the first ever woman was tempted into sin by a talking snake. The situation is ridiculous. Ouch. Awesome. Keep faith out of our schools and teach our children to think critically and not rely on imaginary friends. A win for common sense. If the religious fundamentalists want to inculcate their own, fine. But they have no right to impose their views on others. I'm not sure if that last one quite appreciated the irony of his comment as he seeks to impose his view on others. Uh, But as you read comment after comment, you can't help but feel uh, the oppression of it. Yeah, it just sort of bears down on you. It's exhausting. And when we put the whole picture together so far in, in this psalm, the psalmist is confronted with two recurring themes. Sin is good and God is at best distant. And he's beaten down by envy and ridicule until he's on that brink of capitulation, oppressed by this overwhelming, nagging feeling that maybe they are right. Verse 13, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. You can hear the ambivalence, can't you? You Here is a a Jewish man uh, who knows the scriptures and he believes that the righteous will be blessed and the unrighteous will be cursed. And yet his experience is just so different. The wicked prosper and every day he feels like it's a burden. Every day he's asking the question, God, where are you? Because I feel punished, I feel afflicted. And for someone who has grown up as a member of the people of God, he knows that what he's saying is a complete betrayal of everything he's heard, of everything he believes, and yet he can't help but feel it. I think as Christians, we're we're often surprised by suffering. Uh, We read verses like uh, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And we project our own expectations of God onto those words and feel it should mean that God is going to look after our happiness and health and safety. And even if there's a crisis, well, that's really just God sort of taking his eye off the ball for a moment, but that's okay. We'll get back on track in just a moment. This is just a moment of a character-building opportunity, but it'll be easy again soon. 
Uh, it's tempting to think like that. And what happens is we, that happens when we read the Bible out of context. Because just a few verses later, this is what Paul continues to say. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Being a Christian is never going to exempt us from suffering. In fact, we may well suffer more because of our faith. But what God does promise is that he will always be with us. He does promise that despite our despair, despite our feeling of weakness, he continues to be strong. He continues to hold us and he will not let go. And even though life can feel hopeless now, it is not hopeless in the big picture of eternity. So far, uh, the picture we've painted is a pretty bleak journey. Uh, And this is the journey this guy has been going on as he looks around the world and sees his struggle and its success. And just when you think it's all over, when he's about to give up, you know, just curl up in a ball and, you know, die. Then we get to verse 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Destiny. It's a, it's a phoenix rising moment. You know, it's that moment in the movie where, where the, the hero's down, he's beaten, you know, there is no comeback. And then just, you know, when it's all about to be over, you know, the the music starts to build in the background. You know, he struggles to one knee, then the other, then stands to his feet. You know, the the music builds some more. You know, and he's back. You know, and, and, you know, the hero wins, the villain is vanquished, and we roll the credits. You know, that's the, the moment we're up to in this psalm. So for the first time, he lifts his eyes off the world, off the world's like, off its success, and he starts to see the world through the eyes of God. The wicked won't always prosper. God isn't dead, he isn't distant, and he won't ignore sin. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed. Even as Christians, I think we find these words a little uncomfortable. Uh, No one likes to talk about judgment. We love the idea of justice and we want to see justice in this world. But if there is justice, there must be judgment. And if God is just, then he he will just all wickedness, including ours. And I think that's where we get really uncomfortable. We always want to think wickedness is out there. It's always someone else. It's never us. It's never our sin. It's always out there. But God is just and he will judge. And if we choose to stand against God, then he will judge against us. Jesus died on the cross for all humanity. He paid the price and it was sufficient for everyone. But we only receive that mercy and we only receive that grace when we respond, when we repent and follow him. And even that act of repentance is an act of mercy on behalf of God. 
And the psalmist knows that when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was a senseless and ignorant. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You can hear the, the music, you know, building that much more. Despite his faithlessness, God is faithful. And even though he is weak, God is strong. God holds on to him, God leads him, and God will take him to glory. It's a picture of complete and absolute weakness and dependence, but also the complete sovereignty of God, that in our weakness, God is in control. I think often when people think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, we think the Old Testament was all about being saved by the law and doing works, and the New Testament is saved by grace. It's an undeserved act of mercy on behalf of God. Uh, The reality is, from beginning to end, uh, it's all about the grace of God. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies for the past, for the present, and for the future. Uh, And he pays the price for all of creation. And that's our hope. It's not in our goodness, it's not in our works, it's not in our coming to church. It's in the grace of God. But the, the big difference between the Old Testament and the New is that we have the Holy Spirit. So not only uh, are we taught it in God's word, but through the Spirit uh, we are convicted of it uh, and our heart is drawn to it. And that's a wonderful picture. Uh, There's a golden rule uh, in riding a motorbike uh, that says, where you look is where you go. Uh, so every now and again I get to uh, take a motorbike, my motorbike, out to Eastern Creek, uh, which I love, awesome fun. Uh, and uh, as you come down the main straight, you're doing about 250. Okay, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, as you get to the end, there's this big, sweeping, fast left-hand corner. And you can go around this corner as fast as your courage will allow. Okay, it's all there. The, the limiting factor is not the bike, it's not the corner, it's you. Right, But as you hit this corner, the temptation is to take your eyes off where you need to go and to start to fixate on where you're most afraid of going off the track and into a wall. And it's the same in the Christian life, that where we look is where we go. And so we need to fix our eyes on Christ. And that's what the psalmist has realised in this psalm and it's what Paul reminds us of in Colossians. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If we focus on the world and ourselves, we lose perspective. We start to think it's all about us and our happiness. Uh, when we, even as Christians, when we start to focus on ourselves, we lose the joy of what it means to be a Christian. It ends up being a set of rules and obligations and responsibilities rather than a relationship to enjoy. And it becomes a burden. But when we focus on Christ, that's when we get our perspective. That's when we understand who we are created in God's image. That's when we have a piece of who we are, where we're going, a certain hope, a certain future. 
And my single encouragement for today is really to, for us to focus on Christ. So rather than fighting against the world and saying, you know, why the world is wrong or why being a Christian is better, let's focus on Jesus, on who he is and what he has done for us. And I think we start by repenting. Uh, If we've been like the arrogant, uh, if we've been complacent in our love for God, uh, if we've uh, presumed on God's grace, that God will forgive because that's what God does, then we need to repent of that. We need to acknowledge our sin, say sorry, and make a decided effort to change. I think we need to spend more time reading our Bible and taking pleasure in it. Again, not as an obligation or something we should do, but simply because it's the Word of God, because this is how God speaks. This is how God reminds us of who he is and who we are before him. And at times that's going to challenge us and at times it's going to rebuke us. And both of those things are good because they they shape us and mould us to be more like him. We need to think about our work and our priorities through the lens of living for Christ. How can we use our time and our gifts to be a blessing to others, to proclaim the glory of God. As husbands, how can we lead our families in godliness? As wives, how do we love our husbands? How do we love our children? How do we put Christ first in the decisions we make and the example that we set? Finally, we need to talk about our doubts and our struggles Uh, And really, I hope that this psalm uh, creates an opportunity to do that, that it gives words uh, to what we feel but often can't express. Uh, We need to be willing to be vulnerable enough with each other to be honest, but also gracious as we listen to each other, and that we will show the same grace to those who are struggling that Christ shows to us. Would we have enough love for each other that we'll put their godliness first, even above our desire for friendship? Would we risk everything for their godliness? Because that's what it means to focus on Christ. Now, the psalmist begins in a place of despair. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. But it ends in a very different place. And I pray that his words will be our words. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your love and for your grace. We know that in our weakness, uh, that you are strong, that you hold us, that you guide us, uh, that you shape us by your spirit to be more like you. And so we pray uh, today as we leave here, Uh, that you convict our hearts and our minds uh, to love you and to serve you more. Amen.